pray together as we come to God's word. Lord, we recognise that as you speak through your word, uh, we need to have ears to listen. That is what you said uh, to people as you spoke to them uh, when you had your ministry on earth. And so we, we know that now. And so, Lord, give us ears to listen. Give us ears to hear what you would say to us through your word. Uh, lift up our eyes to see Jesus, uh, to see what he's done for us, to pay close attention. Uh, Lord, I ask for your help now that uh, my words may be your words and that the words of my mouth may be pleasing in your sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing a series through the book of Genesis uh, and we are looking at, uh, we're in the middle of the flood narrative. So uh, last week, uh, the flood um, sort of began uh, and we looked at what that meant. And this week uh, is during the flood. And so Renee was able to give us a little bit of context as to what was happening. So we pick up here at chapter 8. In chapter 8, uh, there's a few things that uh, happen. Um, but one of the things that I think strikes me in particular is that God seems to care particularly about his people and his creation. He is intent on keeping his promises. And it's interesting, uh, we often think about uh, that we must keep promises to God or we must bring to mind the promises he makes to us. Uh, And in this text, we actually learn a lot about the promise-keeping God. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. The first thing I want to point out to you is that God remembers his promises God remembers his promises. We get this from chapter 8 and verse 1. And it says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God remembered Noah. God remembers people. God cares about his people. He calls them to mind. The Bible is abundantly clear. know uh, when it comes to theology that God is all-knowing. So he knows everything. He's omniscient. uh, He's all-knowing. And yet he calls particular people to mind because of his care for them. We see this, that God remembered Noah and, of course, all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him on the ark. This is against immediately the thought that God does not care about humanity. This is against immediately the thought that God has set up the world but is distant. No, God cares specifically about people. He remembers them. He calls them to mind and he calls to mind his promises to them. We, of course, know that God had promised that he would save Noah and all his family. We learn that in chapter 7. God would save them from the coming judgment. And we learned about that last week. But here we see that God has been faithful to the promise that he has made. Although God hasn't spoken to Noah for some time, it seems, God himself in his heart has remembered his people. Now this is actually a consistent pattern. God is a remembering God. And this phrase, God remembered, actually comes up several times throughout the Bible. Uh, The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 19 that God remembered Abraham and so saved his nephew Lot from being judged, uh, coming under the judgment of an evil city in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
We know that God remembered Rachel and gave her a son. He remembered that Rachel had so desired to have a child and so he gave her the desires of her heart and that son turned out to be Joseph and Joseph turned out to save the whole family uh, from a famine in the land. We learn a little bit later in the book of Exodus that God remembered Israel to save them from slavery and oppression. And all of these instances of God's remembrance come back to his promise to his people. God has said that he will take care of his people. He will bless them. He will make them be fruitful and multiply and they themselves will, becoming, will become a blessing to all the other nations on the earth. So just as God was faithful with Noah, God is faithful with his people in every instance. God remembers them. I want you to pick up something else about God remembering his promises, and this is really important. It's, uh, it is that only by the deliberate action of God can there be salvation. Only by the deliberate action of God can there be salvation. So I want you to pick this up with me. This is a second part of verse 1. And it says, And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the water subsided. Then verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. Notice that God made a wind blow over the earth. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed and the rain from the heavens was restrained. Notice all of those are actions that God did. This didn't happen by accident. God deliberately saved Noah and his creation who were on this boat. He had to act deliberately for it to happen. This again is God being faithful to his promises. Now this is true in every instance when it comes to God having a saving relationship with people. It is because of his deliberate action. We get this particularly from John chapter 10 uh, when Jesus actually speaks about his own deliberate action to lay down his life for the sake of his people. John chapter 10 and verse 18 says this, speaking of his life, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, God makes promises to his people and he remembers them in order to keep his promises. And only by the deliberate and specific action of God can there be salvation. God was the one that stopped the rain, stopped the flood. No one else did it. God did. And Jesus is the one who chose as God to go to the cross, to take on the sins of humanity to save us from them. Now, there's something that I find fascinating uh, in this first part of chapter 8 is that God hasn't spoken to Noah for some time, it seems. In fact, we don't actually see God speak to Noah until verse 15 and 16 of the chapter. All we're hearing about is what God has remembered. There's a significant gap 
between when God last spoke to Noah, as recorded for us, and when he eventually does speak to Noah on the boat. What do you do in that gap? What do you do when you aren't hearing the voice of God like Noah? You have to trust what he has already said. You have to trust his word. You have to trust that God keeps his promises. Noah was on a boat with his family, with a whole heap of animals, and livestock, food set aside for them, and there was water as far as the eye could see, and he had to wait and to trust God. So let me say this. Our ability to trust God during a crisis doesn't affect his ability to fulfill his promises. Our ability to trust God during a crisis doesn't affect his ability to fulfill his promises. You know, God hadn't spoken to Noah for some time. Noah just had to trust that God was doing what God does. Even if Noah failed to trust God at different times, which all of us do, God still fulfills his promises. Why? Because God is a promise-keeping God. That's what he does. And to the degree that we believe that is to the degree that we will live it out. If you want to have a relationship with God where there is joy, where you are free from the control of anxiety and worry, if you want to have a relationship with God where you have a sense that he's with you, you have to trust him at his word. God has spoken. You know, there's a lot of people who talk about God said this to me, God said that to me. Uh, and that may be well and good. It's a bit um, difficult to verify whether God did actually speak to you. And if we're going to make big life decisions on you know, uh, whether we heard the audible voice of God, we'd want to make sure it's true and accurate. But we, there's one way we can be sure that God speaks to us, and that is from his word. He has spoken. It is a written record for us and our trust in it will determine the course of our lives. Um, I've climbed up a mountain called Mount Feathertop twice in my life. I think it's the second highest peak uh, in Victoria. Uh, both winter ascents and so it's covered in snow and ice. The first time uh, I was about 14 years old, and I'd just become a Christian just a few weeks earlier. And so I was climbing up this mountain, and uh, Mount Feathertop, um, as pretty much all the mountains uh, in Australia are, they start out, you're not on the snow line, you have to work your way up to the snow line, and then you hit a peak, and the, the peak usually has no trees on it and is covered in rock and ice, at least Mount Feathertop is. However, there's a certain part of the ascent where you need crampons, in your boots, that is steel claws in your shoes that you kick into the ice as you're going up to make sure you don't slip off and die. Uh, because on one side of this uh, mountain is a sheer uh, face, uh, a drop of about 200 metres, and people have died climbing up that section. And so as I was, um, beautiful conditions, you know, bright blue sky, uh, about 13 to 14 years old, and climbing up uh, this mountain, I had a crisis moment. Did I really believe 
that if I died at that moment, I would go to heaven and be with Jesus. Was I really saved? And I stopped. And I said, I can't go any, on any further because I'm scared. Now, at that moment, my faith had to either kick into gear because the thing that I feared was not death but what came after. So I had to either believe that what had happened to me some uh, weeks earlier was true or it wasn't and stay in fear. And eventually, through the encouragement, uh, because there were some Christians around me, through their encouragement, I did continue up to the top and then managed to run back down the mountain afterwards because God had done something in my heart to the point at which I believed. The second ascent of uh, Mount Feathertop was last year, during long weekend, and there had been an enormous amount of snow uh, in the weeks leading up, in the week leading up to it. So it was an enormously difficult climb, uh, and it was uh, zero visibility almost. Uh, we could see maybe you know, three, four feet in front of us as we decided to ascent the mountain, and I came basically to the same spot that I did. Uh, those many years earlier when I was a young person having just been converted and I walked straight past that point. Why? Because God did something in me then which reminded me that he is always faithful to his promises. He is a promise-keeping God and I believed what the Bible said to be true in my heart and so clung to that promise. And so the second time, in much worse conditions, was of no issue. Now this shows us an important principle, that as we grow in our trust in God and we have experiences in our lives, challenging circumstances, like I'm sure Noah remembered this for the rest of his life, we are able to trust God at his word and believe that we are his people and not have anxiety or worry consume us. And whenever that anxiety or worry rises up in our minds, we remind ourselves of what? His word, his promises, that he is faithful, that he will save his people, that our eternity and relationship with him is secure. As Diane said earlier, our worth is not, depend, not dependent upon our performance. Our worth, if we are in relationship with Jesus, is dependent upon him and he is perfect. So the first thing we've observed is that God remembers his promises. The second thing we observe in our text is that we must wait on God for his promises. So from verse uh, 6 onwards, we see Noah trying to work out when it's time to leave the ark. And so what does he do first? He sends out a raven. He sends out a bird to go and see if there's any land. Uh, the raven, it seems, goes back and forth, doesn't, doesn't find any land. There's no sign that a raven has found land. So he changes course and sends out a dove. He sends out a dove, secondly. And the dove goes back and forth several times. And eventually the dove does come back, verse 11, with a freshly plucked olive leaf. And then it says, So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. But... He still hasn't heard from God yet. So he doesn't, doesn't move, doesn't go anywhere. He continues to wait. So he's waited for the raven. He's waited for the dove. 
Verse 12, then he waited another seven days, sends forth the dove again, and she doesn't return to him anymore. Assuming that the dove has hopefully you know, found a place to live or it's just fallen in the water and died. He's not really sure. That would be, the latter would be the sad option. But continuing on, we see that Noah still doesn't move out, but he opens up the roof, the covering of the ark, looks and he sees that the face of the ground is dry. So he's gone for the raven, he's gone for the dove, he even looks with his own eyes, still he waits. What is Noah waiting for? Verse 15, Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and creep, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. What was he waiting for? He'd used his eyes, he'd used his senses, he'd used his intelligence, used different animals to work on his behalf. He'd observed that everything is good, but what was he waiting for? He was waiting for the word of God. He was waiting for God to say, go. Isn't that interesting? What had Noah cultivated on his long life, in his long life? Patience. Where do you get patience from? Trust in God, that God remembers his promises. But oftentimes, we are waiting. We are waiting for God to, for God to fulfill his promises. Now, I think Noah's example here gives us a little bit to go on. Firstly, shows us that we have to discern from the circumstances of life what we are to do. We have to use our senses. We have to use our volition, our intelligence, you know, our life experiences to work out what we are to do. Noah sends the raven, sends the dove, looks with his own eyes, and he's still trying to work out, should I leave the boat? Is it time? Is everything ready? But no, he waits until God says, go. Now, this idea of uh, looking at the you know, circumstances of his life, looking at the circumstances around him and discerning God's will is actually picked up again for us in the New Testament. Romans 12.2 says this. It says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So basically there's two ways to live. There's a way that you live by your gut, your emotions, what you, you, know, you feel is right, and there's another way, which is you trust God at his word. You have your mind renewed by trusting his promises and you discern what his will is. So it's your way or God's way. Noah expressed trust in doing it God's way by waiting for his word. This means if we are to be people of God, to be faithful to him, we have to trust him at his word. We have to learn, like Noah did over his long life, to wait for God and be patient, not take matters into our own hands. Which brings me to our next point. It says, waiting on God means obedience not to take matters into your own hands, but to wait for his word. Now, I think this is very important because 
very often we like to take matters into our own hands. And one of the most basic ways we do that is with worry. I've mentioned this earlier, but rather than giving our problems or concerns to God in prayer, we run them over and over again in our minds. We don't actually express our worries to God in prayer and leave them with him. I heard it explained uh, in a book that I've read recently uh, with Jesus' interaction with his mother. So Jesus' mother, her name is Mary, uh, they're at a wedding in Cana, and it's recorded for us in John chapter 2. And it's one of the big Middle, Middle Eastern weddings. They sort of put on a big flash party. It goes for three days. And the third day, they'd run out of wine. And this is a disaster. This would bring shame upon the, um, uh, the couple who were getting married and their family because they hadn't actually uh, prepared enough wine for the hordes that had drunk all of their wine. So they hadn't prepared very well, so that would have been shame upon the family. Jesus' mother is aware of what's going on and just brings the problem to Jesus. She says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And then she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. She doesn't say, Jesus, you could, you know, um, organise someone to bring some wine in from another place and, you know, use a miracle that... You know, people would bring wine from somewhere else and you, they wouldn't have to pay for it or you'd organise that um, you know, someone accidentally, uh, you know, uh, forgot where the wine was and then we're going to find more wine. No, she didn't bring solutions to Jesus. She brought the problem to Jesus. Why? Because she trusted him. Because she trusted that he knew more than she did. And so what does Jesus do? The most unusual thing you could think of, he turns water into wine. He turns water into wine. This principle in this book I was reading on prayer, interestingly enough, tells us rather than bringing our solutions to God, saying, God, you could do this or you could do this, and trying to work them all out in our minds, no, we are to bring our helpless needs to God, trusting that he knows more than we do. He knows better than us. We wait for him to answer our prayers with patience. I'm sure that Noah, sitting on that boat, with all of those animals, all the family, with water as far as the eye could see, was praying and waiting on God. When's it going to happen? How long is this going to be? But he had to trust him. That's why he didn't step out until God spoke, until God had made clear that he had answered those prayers. And in the same way, if we are to have a relationship with God that is not filled with our own worry, we have to take him at his word and bring to him our helpless needs, as we see in the example at the wedding of Cana. Another way that we uh, can often not trust God is when suffering turns into disappointment in our lives. Let me give you an example of that. Some of you uh, may be familiar with a man called Andrew Chan, who was a self-confessed heroin addict and drug smuggler, who was part of the infamous Bali Nine. He actually got married while he was in prison uh, to a woman called Fibianti Herawilla Chan. And uh, when he died in 2015, she was interviewed. And this is what she said. She said, Andrew managed to end it well. Andrew managed to bless people. 
Andrew managed to forgive those who hurt him, those who mock him. It's only because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus, she said. If you want to have the same courage, the same peace, if you want to end it well with him, it's only through Jesus. So one of the amazing things that had happened in Andrew Chan's life is that um, after becoming a drug smuggler and a heroin addict, he came to faith in God. He came to faith in Jesus in the prison. As he got married, his uh, wife was a Christian and a pastor as well. But some years after this um, amazing declaration, uh, six years later, in 2021, uh, Febby says this. It says, for a long, oh, so the article says this. For a long time, Febby hid herself away from her friends and from God. But she'd missed talking to people who knew Andrew. And by reaching out to them again, they helped her come back to God. Slowly, Febby began to speak. And she began to listen afresh to God's words. I had this image of a God who would not allow someone to go through such pain. And I know now that was with the wrong mindset. It was a misunderstanding about how God deals with difficult situations in our lives. After what happened to Andrew, that's what really shifted for me. I began to understand that being a Christian didn't mean that bad things would not happen to me, but that when they did, God would be with me. He can use my pain and my difficulty in those dark hours to help other people. You see, though she professed a very courageous statement about her husband's death, it actually got to her soon afterwards. And she isolated herself for several years. And it was only by, listen, and listen to her words, only by having Christian friends around her who brought her to do what? To listen afresh to God's words that she found healing and reaffirming trust that God is faithful to her promises. Did you pick that up? We will all face various kinds of suffering in our lives and utter disappointment. And it will just increase as life goes on, which is the sad fact, but it will. How we handle those, again, depends on what we do with the promises of God. Now, oftentimes we'll handle them poorly. Let's be honest. But when we, like Febby, return to listen afresh to God's will, when we come back to his promises, that he remembers his people, that he cares for them, and he will not abandon them. The Bible says he will never leave us nor forsake us. If if God was willing to forsake his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? If we come back to him, he will remind us that he is always faithful because he is a promise-keeping God. And even, this is a wonderful promise that we get in the scriptures in 2 Corinthians, says even the difficulties that we go through will be able to encourage and bless others who are going through the same things. So whatever you've gone through, whatever you're going through, as you bring your concerns to God, as you listen afresh to his word, remind yourselves in Christian community, just like Phoebe did, as you do that, you will grow in your trust that God is with you in those difficulties. Even if you're not hearing it, even if you have to access this by patience, even just like Noah you know, though you're not hearing the word of God, you're calling to mind his promises, you will be able to bless and encourage others to do the same. So God remembers his promises, firstly. Secondly, we must wait on God for his promises. And thirdly, 
God's promises are always rooted in grace. I want you to look with me at verse 20. And it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. Notice that Noah brings a pleasing offering to God. This idea of a burnt offering was often done by the patriarchs and people in Genesis before we get the law, which makes really specific instructions for the offerings and types of ways we are to Uh, offer right sacrifices to God for particular sins or for worship. Uh, But in this instance, a burnt offering is quite a general offering. It's a way of giving thanks for God's salvation. It's an expression of gratitude. So Noah recognises that once they're out of the ark, God has brought them safely through. God has been faithful to his promises in every way. God is continuing to fulfil his promise that through humanity, And through this animal kingdom, that they will be fruitful and multiply on all the earth. And as God is faithful, what will Noah do? He will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving, essentially. A burnt offering to say, God, you are faithful. And then it says something fascinating. God smelled the pleasing aroma of the offering. What does this mean? God was pleased by the, sm- the smell of sort of some livestock that had been cut up and burnt on an altar. Does God like the smell of burning meat? Is that what it meant? We actually get some insight to this throughout the Bible, but I just want to pick up on one place. And this is Psalm 50, verse 23. And it says this, To one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. What's going on here? God wants a relationship with Noah and his family. And so when Noah has just shown gracious appreciation Love and gratitude for what God has done. God knows that Noah loves him back. God has expressed all this love to Noah and his family and to the animals. He's saved them from a tremendous judgment that covered the whole world. And just that Noah would love him back, that Noah would express that through an offering, God is pleased. God is pleased when his people love him. That's what he wants. What more does God want out of our lives than for us to love him as he first loved us? Is this selfish? Think about it. Every relationship we have, that's really just what we want, isn't it? A parent with a child, what do you want for them? Ultimately, you want to give the best to them because you love them, but what do you want for them? You want them to love you. Because you know that their best is in loving relationship with you. What does a husband or a wife just want from their spouse? Love. Love. Friendship. What is the height of friendship but love? What is the height of the church? What does it say? They will know you for your love for one another. Faith, hope and love, 1 Corinthians 13. But the greatest of these is love. 
God knows that his best is love in our lives. And when we express that through thanksgiving to him, it shows a heart of love. God wants a relationship that is based on trust and love with us, just like we want with each other. So God is pleased by this offering. God is pleased by this offering even though he knows that humanity will continue to sin. Have a look. It says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is pleased that Noah has made this offering and is willing to ensure that he will never again curse the earth in that same way by bringing this kind of judgment to the world, even despite the fact that we sin against him continually, that we are evil from our youth, in our hearts. We consistently reject God. How can God be like this? Because his heart is overflowing with love and mercy. He just wants to pour it out. He's looking for people to pour out his love and mercy upon. That's what this shows us. I mean, Noah is just, you know, just out of a thankful heart. And God says, by the sacrifice of one man, I'm going to bless the entire earth forever. That is God. It's just like a dam waiting to burst forth in mercy and love upon people. Now, if this is true here, how much more with Jesus? Think about it. The sacrifice of one would bless every human being who would ever believe for all of human existence. That we would have a shared inheritance with Jesus for all eternity. That we would be considered not just plebs or subjects or servants, but children of God entering into his family. What God had set up in, um, in the Garden of Eden, even better than that. This amazing relationship filled with love, with eternal life, with everything good and nothing bad. God was just waiting to burst forth this mercy and love based on the wonderful offering of one. And that one is Jesus. And we get an example, a a sign that this is coming from Noah. So his promises are always rooted in grace. And we've seen that God is pleased with a gracious offering. We also see that God knows our sins and evil hearts. Now, I've mentioned this a little bit, but I don't think we really get this. We really consider deeply what this means. God knows exactly what we're like. That is, even when we think we're doing really well in our lives, God knows what's really going on in our hearts. God knows the things that we think, the selfish thoughts that we have, the ways that we do blame others for all of our problems. <laughs> he knows how self-centered we really are, how we're only really on about our own agenda and just want ourselves to be happy. We're not concerned for the sakes of others. We get this uh, same idea in John chapter 2 again about Jesus in verse 23, and it says this, Now, speaking of Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people 
and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus even knew that while all these people were saying they believe in him, they really didn't. Because he knew the heart of man. He knows people are fickle. People will say they're a Christian if, if only there's a few benefits to it, but they really don't like Noah did do it out of love for him. Notice that God isn't interested in the things that we do for him so much as the heart that we have toward him. That's what Jesus is picking up on here. We see this later in the New Testament and the Gospels where many will come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, I did this for you, I did that for you. And Jesus will say, get away from me, I never knew you. Why? Because God doesn't need our offerings of good works. He doesn't need us to do stuff for him. He's already given to us everything. Look at what God has given Noah. He's given to him salvation. He's given to him provision. He's given him a way to renew the whole world. This amazing blessing, long life, everything that goes with that. He doesn't need anything from Noah. God, by his deliberate word and action, was the one that restrained the water from covering the whole earth. He's the one that brought the wind to blow it down and create evaporation. God doesn't need anything from Noah. He doesn't need anything from us. What does he want? A love relationship with us. That is what he desires. He knows our sins and our evil hearts. But God, in his mercy, covers over our sins. God, in his mercy, covers over our sins. God said, I will never again curse the ground because of man. He says, neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. How can God make that kind of promise? How can God say, I'll never do that again and still be a just and holy God? When we get to the flood narratives, it's a bit should be terrifying, a little bit, because we see that God is so just and so holy that he is willing to wipe out almost all life on earth because of sin, because of the corruption that comes with sin. And we did talk about this in detail last week. We should be a bit fearful of a holy and righteous God. So how can this holy and righteous God says, I'm never going to do that again, and still be a God of justice? Will God punish evil? I mean, if you take a cursory look over the past century, there's a whole lot of evil that's happened, isn't there? Just in our history, let alone our own personal lives. What about the people that have wronged us? What about the things that we've done? We probably tend to think less of those things, but sometimes the, the guilt and the shame, it piles up. How can a just and holy God not do that and not pour out his judgment upon every living thing again? only if he was willing to take that just judgment upon himself. That is the only way that God can fulfill this promise. And so ultimately, a promise-keeping God is fulfilled in Jesus. That is the only way that we know that God will fulfill this promise. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's because Jesus was willing to take that curse and judgment upon himself. The Old Testament tells us that cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. 
Yeah, it was a sign that you're a criminal. It was a sign that you were rejected by God and rejected by man. And Jesus himself was found outside of the holy city, Jerusalem, a place called Golgotha, hanging upon a tree. Two pieces of wood nailed together for the purpose of a crucifixion. It was a death device. Jesus hung there so that he could fulfill his promise to Noah, to humanity, to all of creation, actually, so that we know if Jesus was willing to take that upon himself, that he will come and do what? Yes, he will judge the living and the dead. Yes, those who are with Jesus are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. We have chosen our own path away from God and we'll take the consequence of that into eternity with us. But the Bible promises a good end. It promises a world that is renewed. It promises a world with the new heavens and a new earth. That is what we look forward to. And we look forward to that because we have a covenant keeping God, a God who always fulfills his promises. Finally, if we see that God... His promises are always rooted in grace. He's ready and willing to pour out his mercy upon us. We recognise that God will not abandon his people. We just get this very briefly in verse 19. Sorry, in verse 22. It says, While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. I don't know if you've noticed, but for the past 30 years or so, there's been a dramatic increase in apocalyptic Literature, that is novels and media, so movies and YouTube videos and the like, because we are convinced that we will bring the world to an apocalypse. But what does God say? While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Why? Because God said so. This means that the world, we cannot cause a worldwide apocalypse. Yes, humanity can you know, harm the environment, we can kill each other. We're good at doing those things, right? This, we, don't, we don't need, I don't need to prove that to anyone that we're good at doing those things. But will it be destroyed entirely? No. Why? Because God has promised it to be so. So one of the, the greatest fears amongst uh, contemporary Australians today is having a kind of a climate apocalypse, uh, that we are going to so, with the rest of humanity, going to so destroy the climate with climate change uh, that everything will be destroyed and will be ended. But the reality is not the case because God has promised that he will not allow that to happen. Just as God restrained uh, the heavens from bringing down rain, God is restraining human evil so that he can come in his final judgment and set everything right. That is his plan. So we should not be afraid of these kinds of things. But... We should be praying that God will bring about a new season of his grace. Notice that there will be ongoing seasons. Seed time, harvest, cold, heat, summer and winter, day and night. They shall not cease. When darkness comes, there will be light. When winter comes, there will be summer. God has kept these signs for us. Why? Because there will always be hope. We know that there are ebbs and flows of suffering in this world to varying degrees across history. 
They've got birth pains in Matthew 24. And we talked about those a little bit last week. You know, they, come, they heighten and then they dissipate. They heighten and they dissipate. But here we see that there is always hope around the corner. And so our prayer, our heart should align with God's that there will be a new season coming where he would pour out his grace through his church upon his people, that he would restore relationships, that he would fill his people with a kind of faith that trusts him patiently like Noah did. That's what we should be seeking after in our church and in our lives. Uh, I just picked up a book recently um, by a guy called Jim Simbler. It's called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And in the book, it has just a short section. I might have mentioned this before, but um, of Jim's daughter, Chrissy. And uh, he describes uh, this excruciating season when his daughter um, ran away. And this is what he says. It says, as the situation grew more serious, she was 16 years old. I tried everything. I begged, I pleaded, I scolded, I argued. I tried to control her with money. Looking back, I re- recognised the foolishness of my actions. Nothing worked. She was just hardened more and more. Her boyfriend was everything and we did not want everything we did not want for our child. Over this time, uh, his wife needed a hysterectomy and she was so filled with fear after the surgery that she herself prepared to run away from the city. Is there in Brooklyn, uh, New York and the ministry that God had called them to. But Jim Simbler felt God speak to him. He says, Once again, as back in 1972, there came a divine showdown. God strongly impressed me to stop crying, screaming, or talking to anyone else about Chrissy. I was conversed with no one but God. In fact, I knew I should have no further contact with Chrissy until God acted. I was just to believe and obey what I preached so often. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you. Notice that uh, the circumstances of life and not having prayers answered brought Jim Simbler to his knees in prayer. Notice that he was waiting for God to act. He wasn't taking things into his own hands anymore. He was believing that God is faithful to his promises. He was recognising that he had to wait on God and God alone in prayer. Keeping to his word, Jim had stopped speaking about Chrissy but continued to pray. Then one church prayer meeting, a note was passed to Jim that said, Pastor Simbler, I feel impressed that we should stop the meeting and all pray for your daughter. Jim described the next minutes as he was listening to a labour room in a hospital. The church had gone to war for Chrissy. That night, Jim felt a flood of relief and confidence that their prayer had been answered. Less than three days later, there was a knock at the door of Jim and Carol's house. Chrissy was home. Amidst the bare grip hugs and weeping, Chrissy said, Who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? Her voice was like that of a cross-examining attorney. What do you mean, Chrissy? On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? I didn't say anything, so she continued, In the middle of the night, God woke me and showed me that I was heading toward the abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realised how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding any farther as he said, I still love you. Daddy, tell me the truth. Who was praying for me on Tuesday night? I looked into her bloodshot eyes and once again I recognised the daughter. 
that we had raised. Notice that God showed her that there is judgment for those who reject God and his purposes, but his grace abounds all the more. You see, we have a promise-keeping God who, when the chips are down, he turns us to our knees that we ought pray to him and just trust him. Because that's what he wants from us. He wants a relationship filled with love because he always keeps his word. And if you ever doubt it, think to the cross. For he who did not neglect to give his own son, how will he not graciously give us all things? I invite the band to come back up and I'm going to pray. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his faithfulness, utter faithfulness to keep the promise that, Father, you made to Noah. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We ask that you would fill our hearts with a sense of your trustworthiness, that we might be people who do not turn to our own selves and look to our own understanding, but rather acknowledge you in all our ways, that you would make straight our paths. Lord, we ask for your help in all these things. Make us a trusting people for you, our trustworthy God. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.